Good morning, everybody. Thanks for bringing it back in so nicely. It's a little easier without coffee to get you guys back in your seats, I think. Uh, good morning. My name's Ian. I get to serve as one of the elders here at True North, and I'm excited to be talking with you guys this morning. If uh, I don't look familiar, that's okay. I have been on an inactive status since the start of this year, and uh, that's in our church constitution and bylaws that an elder can take a year period of inactivity to take some rest. I've been doing this thing since 2016, so I'll plan to get started back on January 1st of 2024, but uh, if I don't look familiar, that is why. There was a little bit of internal debate over whether I'm allowed to be up here and preach or not, but uh, kind of like if you've ever seen uh, Airbud, you know, the ref said, there's no rule that says the dog can't play basketball. Same thing here. There's no rule that says I can't, so I'm up here. Uh, and I just want to start today with gratitude and say thank you. Thank you to the elders who let me take this time. Thanks to the deacons and the staff, and thank you to all of you. It's been really great uh, for my family. We're almost halfway through it, and I think it's going to be good for uh, the church overall that we allow elders to take some rest. So thank you to all of you. Today we're going to get started uh, and continue with reading through the book of Mark, chapter 4. And these last few weeks we've been working through some parables that Jesus has been teaching, and uh, people have been gathered to hear Jesus speak. And we're just going to start right in by reading Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 41. Those are going to be on the screen for us as well. This is the parable of the mustard seed. And he said, he being Jesus, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. All right, this is our third seed parable in four weeks. So uh, if you've read ahead, it'll be our last one for a while, but uh, if you're sick of seeds, this is the last week, so uh, it'll all be over soon. And I think it's important to start there, though, that Jesus is speaking to the people in language that is familiar to them and in things that they would understand. If we look at, back at verse 33, it says, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And so Jesus is using things that people of the, his day would understand. For you and me, growing things might be a hobby. It might be something like me that you failed at before and probably are not going to try again. Um, but for that crowd, planting and growing food, planting and growing uh, various plants would be relatable. It would be an everyday thing. It would be as relatable as Jesus if, talking about a car or a smartphone today. This verse also tells us that Jesus is revealing truth to these people in a way that they can soak in. The parables, uh, the point of them, is that they're illustrations. They allow us to connect with these truths that Jesus is speaking to us in a deeper way. And Jesus is using this plain, everyday language so that people can clearly perceive it. But there's this divine truth underneath, below the surface of the story, so people can internalize and understand things about God, about his kingdom, that they didn't understand before. So with that in mind, I'd like to dig into the parable a little bit, and we'll start in verse 30 where it says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? 
one of the themes we've been following in the book of Mark has been this idea that Jesus is much, much different than the Messiah that a lot of these people were expecting. So far in Mark, uh, God is demonstrating to his people through Jesus that perhaps the kingdom of God is different than what they would have been expecting. But you can still see how Jesus uses this to get their attention. He begins with a question. He says, what, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Remember, if you were a Jew and you thought Jesus might be this Messiah that your people have been waiting to come usher in this glorious revolution, you're still expecting a great warrior. You're still likely expecting a great liberator who's gonna come usher in the glorious kingdom of God, get you out of this oppressive rule of the Roman government, so when Jesus asks these rhetorical questions, it gets your attention. Of course, people want to know what the kingdom of God will be like. They're imagining streets paved with gold or big armies. But Jesus gives them an answer that, once again, is not like what they would normally expect. Okay, maybe they could have seen the seed thing coming by now, right? But the analogy is a contrast to what they might have thought Jesus was going to say. So in verse 31, Jesus says, it, being the kingdom of God, is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And we see Jesus is using this hyperbolic language here. You can see the smallest of all seeds, the largest of all plants, in Jesus' day, the mustard seed was a euphemism for something really, really small. Kind of like today, we might say something like, it's smaller than a grain of sand, or it's as fine as the point of a needle. Jesus is hitting home here that something really big can come from something really tiny and really insignificant. Jesus is describing a truth that's apparent through all of Scripture. That truth that we're going to recognize today is that in God's kingdom, big things can start really small. In God's kingdom, big things can start really small. I don't know about you, but if you've read your Bible, you read the Old Testament, some of that seems kind of obvious. Abraham, the patriarch of all of the nation of Israel, he was an old man who couldn't have kids, and God came to him and said, look, look at the stars, I'm gonna make your, your offspring outnumber them. Or you think of King David, he was the smallest of all his brothers, yet he was the one who defeated Goliath. He was uh, the one who was a man after God's own heart. Or Moses had trouble speaking, but God used him to lead an entire nation. But even after we see these examples in the Old Testament, people have done what they've always done. They've molded God's truth. They molded his word to fit into their own desires. And they had a very different version of what God's kingdom should look like. By the time Jesus came on the scene, it was almost impossible for the religious leaders of their day to see him for who he really was. They had such specific beliefs on what you should do on the Sabbath, who you should talk to, how you should conduct yourself, that they could never imagine a Messiah like Jesus. My family, we got our first dog about a month ago, and I didn't want to get a dog. Uh, we have <laughs> enough living beings in our house. I didn't want to be responsible for another one. Um, but we had this opportunity to get this two-year-old husky, um, and we decided as a family we would go for it. Her name's Athena. She's been a lot of fun. And one of the things that's been really interesting for us to witness is just 
how this new animal fits into our whole family dynamic. So the very first day we had her home was Mother's Day, and she killed a chicken right away, just killed one of our chickens. Um, she also regularly gets bullied by our cat, who's like a fifth of her size, so that's fun to witness. The other thing that uh, is really apparent, though, is that I'm her favorite. Hands down, she likes me the most of everybody. When I come home from work, she's there at the door waiting for me. When I come down and uh, wake up and come down the stairs in the morning, she's there waiting for me. She always comes to me first. It's especially funny because I don't feed her. We have given the kids the responsibility to feed the dog. Um, I'm home less than everybody else. I'm working all day. Uh, I don't even buy the food or the treats or anything like that for her. Asia does the grocery shopping. And usually I'm the one who does the mean stuff, right? I trim her nails and hold her down in the bath and force her into her kennel. So I'm not a biologist, um, but here's what I tell my kids. I say, Athena's a pack animal. She's a husky. She's used to looking for her alpha. I'm the tallest. I'm the strongest. I've got the deepest voice in the family. So she's naturally going to look to me for strength. She's naturally going to be looking to who's the most powerful in this family so who I can follow. I think that's right. Uh, but it's, <laughs> it's just instincts. I think it's instincts. But I can't help but be reminded that that's how humans behave, right? We're constantly looking for somebody to follow, somebody who's stronger than us. Jesus knows this. He knows this about humanity. He knows this about you and me, that we are fundamentally attracted to power. People love a strong leader. They love someone to say they're going to deliver us, who will tell us what, just what the right things are to do. And it's actually gotten the human race in a lot of trouble over the course of humanity. We followed politicians and warlords, kings, church leaders, just because they've projected strength and we think they're going to liberate us or save us. And Jesus knows that the people were there to hear him speak. They would all have the same question in the back of their mind. That question would be, when are we gonna to get to see your power, Jesus? Yeah, okay, you've done like some miracles, you healed a couple people, you stumped a few Pharisees, but when are we gonna to get to see your power? When are you gonna liberate us from the rule of the Roman government? When will I get to see the glory of the kingdom of God? And what does Jesus say to them? He says, you wanna know what the kingdom of God is like? You wanna know what the glory is like? It's like a little mustard seed. A little mustard seed that you bury in the ground and you wait, you wait for God to work. See, Jesus is reminding all of us that the kingdom of God works differently. He's inviting us into a completely different mindset, one that trusts the Lord with our small things and trusts his power and his timing rather than his own or our own. I'm reminded by, of a poem that I have read from an author and poet, his name is Wendell Berry. And he often writes about growing things out of the ground um, and I want to share it with you today. I'm going to read it. Uh, Wendell Berry's an old guy from Kentucky with this like deep Kentucky voice, so I'm not going to do it justice, nor am I going to try uh, to do that voice, uh, but I will read it for you today. It'll be on the screen as well. It goes like this. Whatever is foreseen in joy must be lived out from day to day. Vision held open in the dark by our 10,000 days of work. Harvest will fill the barn. For that, the hand must ache the face must sweat, and yet no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace. 
that we may reap, great work is done while we're asleep. When we work well, a Sabbath mood rests on our day and finds it good. The reason I wanted to share that with you is because I think it just captures the essence of faith that Jesus describes with the mustard seed. If we look back, it says, no leaf or grain is filled by work of ours. The field is tilled and left to grace that we may reap. Great work is done while we're asleep. I love that line. This leads us to the second truth that we're gonna recognize from Jesus' parable, that Jesus is powerful beyond our control. Jesus is powerful beyond our control. Our church has been on this journey for almost the past year. Uh, We've started with the book of Mark, and we've been moving between the teachings in Mark and then spending some time on some spiritual disciplines and then moving back to Mark. And uh, so far we've done silence and solitude, we've done prayer, we're up to chapter four in the book of Mark, and it's been awesome to take our time working through the gospels and hear about Jesus' life and the things he said and really dissect them piece by piece. And it's been great to see us challenge ourselves with new or maybe improved practices. I know I've been challenged by some of the teachings and integrating new things into my spiritual life. I've also witnessed others grow in life group, in my community of people being able to mold and become closer to the Lord. But I also think as we go on this journey as a church that there's some danger that we should be aware of. As we focus on spiritual disciplines, I think there's this danger that we can turn inward. That instead of being connected to a powerful, holy God of the universe, at times we can be focused on our own wellness and our own priorities. And our relationship with Jesus can just be like another practice that we integrate into our lives. Like Christianity is just on the list of things we do for self-improvement, right next to intermittent fasting and lifting weights and going to therapy. Instead of, instead of looking to Jesus for our strength and power, Sometimes we hold our relationship with him in our hand, kind of like a little mustard seed. We never plant it into the ground, but instead it's just a token that comes with us. It comes with us to therapy. We hold it in our hand when we have a bad day. We keep it in our pocket when we're working through trauma, or we set it by the alarm clock to make sure that we can get up early to read our Bible before we go to work. What a tiny little God we can create for ourselves. This little token that accompanies us through life, but we don't seem to think that Jesus can bear the burden of any of our real problems or responsibilities. Let me give you some examples of what I think this might look like in the life of a modern day Christian. It might look like being part of a church community, but the moment your mental health starts to decline and not do so well, stop coming to life group. You stop being part of your community. You stop showing up to church on Sundays. It might look like carrying all the trauma that you have that you've realized from your past around like a backpack, wanting to offload it on anybody who will talk to you, anybody in your life, yet never taking the time to fully trust the Lord with your past trauma. Or this one's me. First time things go wrong in my life, what do I do? I create the first list of 10,000 things I'm gonna do to improve my situation, never going to the Lord for trust in his power to rectify or solve my situations. And these examples, and there's many more among us, they all share the same thing in common, that we're not really believing that God is as powerful as he says he is. We're too afraid to plant our little seed because once we do, it'll be outside of our control. 
I want to share a short story with you. It's more of an illustration from Charles Spurgeon in his book, All of Grace. And it goes like this. Years ago, a boat was upset above Niagara Falls. And two men were being carried down the current when people on the shore managed to float a rope out to them. Both seized it. One of them held onto it and was safely drawn to the bank. However, the other, seeing a great log float by, unwisely let go of the rope and clung to the log, for it was bigger and apparently better to cling to. The log with the man on it went right over the vast abyss because nothing connected the log to the shore. The size of the log was no benefit to him who grasped it. It needed a connection with the shore to produce safety. See, church, it's not our abilities that are able to rescue us from the abyss. It's not our practices or our attempts at self-improvement or the relationships we forge or the mental well-being that we have. And it's not even the size of our faith. No, it's what our faith is connected to. That thin cord of our faith is valuable because it connects us to the almighty God of the universe. Something big that comes from something small. There are so many proverbial logs out there that are easy to grasp onto, easy to hold to, but they can do nothing, absolutely nothing to save us. And if you have a hard time trusting that, let's take a look and see what Jesus has to say about himself. So we'll go to Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. This is what Jesus says. He's talking to the, the uh, disciples after they had a hard time casting out a demon. He said to them, he being Jesus, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a mustard seed, like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And then in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So I have to ask you, do you really believe that Jesus is that powerful? Do you really believe he can move mountains do you believe him when he says he can bear your burdens and that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Because that's what Jesus says about himself. Jesus is telling you in these verses that no matter what your problems are, no matter what you face or what you're trying to accomplish, he can take it. He can take it and he can move mountains and he can do what you cannot because he is God and you are not. And listen, I wanna be really clear here I don't want you to hear me come up here and say that you shouldn't wake up early to read your Bible or you shouldn't go to therapy or you shouldn't lift weights or practice silence and solitude. Those are all really good things. They become a problem, however, when we take our hope that is meant for Jesus and we place it square in practices that were never meant to sustain it. I believe we can do all of those things and more, but keeping our hope squarely on Jesus. That's the right way to live a Christian life. And that's the right way to integrate spiritual disciplines into our lives. So we're going to continue reading in Mark because we're moving from a parable to a historical story. And it's no accident that these things are right next to each other in the book of Mark. We just got finished hearing about having faith and that faith doing big things. And now we get to see it played out. So this is starting in verse 35. 
On that day, when the evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And the other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? See, this whole time, Jesus had been teaching at the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And at night, they decided to travel to the other side. And this was normal for the disciples and for Jesus. Many of the disciples were fishermen. They spent much of their lives in boats and on the water. And a boat is easier and quicker, usually, than walking, which was Jesus' primary mode of transportation. And the Sea of Galilee, where this takes place, it's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's not actually a sea. It's a freshwater lake. And it's the lowest freshwater lake in the entire world. It's actually more than 200 meters below sea level. So because of this, because of where it was elevation-wise, these big windstorms could come rushing down from the mountains and cause these flash storms that could be really dangerous. It was common for that to happen. And listen, I know there's a lot of people in here with boating experience um, who've been on a boat with crazy wild seas, so I don't have to tell you how scary that can be. I've been only in mild sea, mildly rough seas a few times in my life, and I'd normally consider myself like a really stable, stoic, calm person, but I don't know, something about boats uh, does that for me. I usually tend to freak out. And it might be because I don't know a lot about boats. Like, okay, I had to Google whether the stern was the front or the back when I was doing this. It's the back, for those of you who are like me. Uh, Jesus was sleeping on the back of the boat. I don't know why they can't just say that. Uh, so my mind goes full panic mode when I'm in rough seas. I'm constantly looking at the shoreline, like trying to find a place I could swim to, thinking about how cold the water might be. And so for these guys, they've been on boats their whole life, and this was a scary storm to them, so I can't imagine what it would have been like. And this is one of those times where I think it's really easy to identify and relate to the disciples, because they just got done hearing about what the kingdom of God is like and how powerful God is and and they've already abandoned their entire lives to follow Jesus. They've literally bet everything that Jesus is who he says he is. Yet, the waves are breaking on the boat, the bottom is filling with water, and Jesus is asleep in the stern, that's the back, uh, and they do what most all of us would have done. They freak out, they panic. They run to Jesus and they wake him up, and it's not like this polite, like, hey, Jesus, Sorry to wake you, there's kind of this storm and you know, maybe you could do something. No, they scream at him, right? They say, Jesus, don't you care? We're dying and you're just laying there on a cushion. And I think that's just one of the most relatable moments in scripture because I know I've been there where it feels like the boat of my life is taking on water and things are rocking and I look at Jesus and he doesn't seem to be doing anything and I just wanna scream at him, don't you care? I'm over here dying. Don't you care, Jesus? But Jesus instantly shows them his power. He literally stands up and commands the ocean to be still. And I think it's really funny how they respond to. They don't go, oh, wow, thankfully Jesus is here. We're so glad that he's looking out for us. 
No, they get even more afraid, right? It says they're filled with great fear and they say to themselves, who then is this that even the wind and the sea would obey? So when we read this story and when we read the parable of the mustard seed, we see the need to trust in Jesus more. When the wind is blowing and the waves are filling our boat, we need to trust in Jesus. When we have faith that's smaller than a mustard seed, we need to trust in Jesus. And when life isn't turning out the way we'd hoped, when our grand plan for our lives to do better is falling apart, we can't seem to get it get together and just white knuckle our way into just being okay, we need to trust in Jesus. But how? What can we do to increase our trust in the Lord? Well, that's where I wanna leave you today. I wanna leave you with a couple of steps to do just that. It's from a book, um, I'll share it. It's called All of Grace by Charles Spurgeon. It's kind of an older book, uh, but it's, and it's short and readable. I'd really encourage you to read it because it does a great job of laying out the tenets of the gospel in a real understandable way. Um, and chapter 12 in this book is titled The Increase of Faith. And Spurgeon gives us eight ways to help increase our faith in Jesus. I'm gonna put them up on the screen because I think they're valuable. The first is to believe at once. Okay, kind of easy, but Jesus commands this. Believing in Jesus is a simple choice. You can do that today in the seat where you sit. You can choose to trust in the Lord. The second is to ask God to lead you to truth. We can go to the source. We can pray to God and ask him to answer our questions and to deepen our trust in him. Third is to hear the gospel often and attentively. We believe lots of things because they're repeated to us many times. So I'd ask you, how often are you hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed? How often are you reading it in his word? The fourth is to consider the testimony of others. We learn lots of things from the experience of others. If you look long enough, you're gonna find somebody who's just like you, who has been rescued by Jesus. I love the example Spurgeon gives in his book. He says, I've never been to Japan, yet I believe there is a place called Japan because other people have been. The fifth is note the authority that you are commanded to believe. It's not me up here telling you what you must do. I've been wrong many times, but God in the authority of his word commands you to trust in him. Consider that authority in your life. Next is consider what you are to believe. You are to believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in place of sinners, like you and like me. Read the Gospels, read the Epistles. Understand and internalize this truth. Next, something we've been doing a lot as a church is consider the person of Jesus Christ. Think of the life of Jesus. Read about the miracles he performed, his teachings, his life, the manner in which he lived and died. And last, I love this one, if nothing else works, submit to God. If you've been wrestling with the Lord, maybe for years, maybe you still can't find a way to trust him to be good in your life. Sometimes true, deep trust and faith just begins at that point of throwing up your hands in the air and saying, I give up. You win, God, I will trust you because I don't know what else to do. Church, here's the greatest hope that I think you'll ever hear, that your faith, no matter how small, tethers you to an all-powerful God. Once that connection is made, there's nothing powerful enough to break it. 
So if we plant our tiny little mustard seed in the ground, Jesus will do the rest. And so when the waves are crashing in our boat, we can trust that Jesus, the only one with the power to rescue us, is right there with us. I want to pray for us before we continue in worship. Father, thank you for... God, thank you for teaching us about you and your word. Thank you that we get to learn who you are. Thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are powerful and strong. Thank you that you are the answer to all of our problems. God, I pray that we would recognize and hear that truth this morning. That, God, I know there's so many in our church who are facing different but challenging circumstances, God, hard places in their life. And God, I just ask that they would have the courage to plant that seed in the ground, to trust you, to give up whatever they're facing and put it off onto the almighty God of the universe. So God, we know that you can sustain us. We know that you are powerful enough. And so Father, uh, I just ask that we would trust that this morning. In your name we pray, amen.